Welcome to the Chapel of the Cross podcast. I'm Elizabeth Marie Melshona, Rector of the Parish. And this week, I'm pleased to welcome the Reverend Dr. Carter Hayward, an Episcopal priest, professor, theologian, activist, and writer who was a member of the Philadelphia Eleven, the first group of women ordained as priests in the Episcopal Church, two years prior to general conventions affirming ordination of women. Through the years, Dr. Hayward has been instrumental in integration efforts, a pioneer in feminist theology, as well as the theology of sexuality. Dr. Hayward is joining us in person on March 18th to discuss her latest book, The Seven Deadly Sins of White Christian Nationalism, A Call to Action. Dr. Hayward, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Elizabeth Marie. A pleasure and an honor to be here with you. It is good to be with you. So I wonder if you could begin by telling us where you are at the moment. Paint us a picture of of the landscape that is animating your work at the moment. Well, I'm in my living room in the mountains of Western North Carolina near the little town of Brevard, which is a town not too far from Asheville. Yes. I have been here since I retired from teaching at Episcopal Divinity School in 2005. But let me just say also, I'm from North Carolina. I was born in Charlotte. I uh, grew up there in Charlotte, a little while in Hendersonville, but mainly in Charlotte. And my family, my siblings and other members of the family are still there. I grew up in the Diocese of North Carolina. How wonderful, fellow diocesan member. I went to, I went to camp in Brevard. So you did. I did a long time. Uh, Keystone. Keystone, of course. A yes. long time ago, Yes. How has the the landscape, the geography, the people of North Carolina, how has that, do you think, informed you? Well, yes. Actually, in this new book of mine, as in some other books I've written, I talk some about my childhood in the mountains here and my longing to return here. Um, there's something about these ancient hills here, these Appalachians. It gets into your soul and your body. and It does like something magnetic that has pulled at me for decades. And so I just naturally gravitated in my mind toward coming back south into the mountains in particular when when I began to think of retiring and thought, you know, no better place on God's earth to be than right here. And uh, because I'm here in the woods near the rivers and streams and um, have had the privilege and the delight of raising some horses we now have like a granny farm of three old horses and one middle-aged horse and dogs and cats and love my animal companions and my human companions and uh, the work that can be done with the animals. Because I taught for 30 some odd years in Cambridge, Mass, and went to seminary in New York City. This is in many ways such a contrast, and uh, both because of the setting, but also because of the culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the politics. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in Cambridge, I was one among many liberals, social liberals. Working for social justice was uh, simply something you did in Massachusetts for long, and you really got involved in one movement or another, and often in many of them. And and I was very grateful that I that helped me understand and root that in the same spirit that these hills had gotten me rooted in. That would be God, I hope, I pray, but that somehow... That was the one that brings us together and calls us to work to be together, whether it's with nature and animals or with people of other races or classes, ethnicities, genders, whatever. 
So it's been a great, I'm 78, and I have to say that the combination of the rural and the urban, the north and the south, fabulous for me personally. I feel very blessed, very privileged. You can hear those resonances of those intersections in your work and the the different layers and the ways in which you acknowledge overlapping, intersecting, amplifying. I'm glad because it always pulls, for me, and I'm sure you know what I mean, Elizabeth Marie, it pulls you beyond where you are right now. I mean, it's it may be wonderful right now, but there's always something else out there that we need to think about. Somebody who's being left out or something that didn't occur to us before, something more to learn. And that's very exciting. I appreciate that that's something more to learn. I mean, as I think about a life with God and life in community, it's like we're always in that process of becoming more and more in the image and likeness of God. Yes. Even even at our death and 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 ultimately with God and and making our community to reflect God's beloved community and that's an ongoing transformative process. Truly. Truly, yeah. yeah, you know, Paul Tillich, the great theologian of the twenty, one of the great theologians of the twentieth century, wrote a book called um, "On the Boundary," and that mm-hmm. is, to me a great image because I think in many ways we're always on the boundary and boundaries of this and that, mm-hmm. them and us, here and now, this life and the next, life and the yeah. next, spirit and 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 body, sort of what's yeah. physical and what's spiritual. I, I was curious reading, you wrote about your imaginary friend from when you were a child, Sophie, and Sophie becoming Sophia in, in, as you grew as a woman. But I wonder if you could speak to that, speak to where you think maybe she, how she arose. Oh, well, I think how she arose, it was at the intersection of my living in the mountains as a very young girl, my I was born in Charlotte, but my family moved to Hendersonville when I was two Okay, for a while. And they moved to escape the polio epidemic that was then really big in the cities. This would have been in 19. I was born in 45 and 47. They moved up to Hendersonville. And, and that's where well, that was my first first time of experiencing life in the woods <laughs> like, I, like I am now. And I was the only child at that time. And uh I wouldn't say I was lonely, but being an only child, I, I, I relied upon my imagination for friendship and uh, keeping me interested and engaged in life. And so that imagination and who knows what else really generated Sophie Couch. Well, Sophie Couch was the name that I gave the little black in those days. We said colored female friend of mine who came and uh, she and I chatted all the time that she was black or colored, I think, reflected my awareness, although very sort of precognitive much of anything, but my awareness of, of, of race as a factor in our life together and the, and the division there. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that most of the people that I saw most of the time were white. The church was all white. My family was all white. Our neighbors were all white. However, we did have a yard man come, and we had a woman come to help take care of me. Bessie, yes? Uh, Bessie, yes, and Jeff. And the two of them were very, very important to me. And um, 
I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what I got. I don't think I got racism exactly, but I did I did think there was something the matter with mm-hmm. with what was going on and I didn't understand it. And neither did my parents. If they understood it, they couldn't explain it to me. I did. I remember several conversations with my mother and father about why Bessie lived in a particular kind of house and neighborhood and ours seemed to be in quote nicer. Mm-hmm. My, my way of trying to put it all together in those days, and my, and I didn't understand why white people lived here and colored people lived there, and I didn't understand why only white people went to the church. And I would ask my parents, and they'd say they didn't understand that either, and they didn't think it was God's will. And I'd say, well, but what can we do about it? And they'd say, not you know, nothing really. They didn't know. Well, that changed later in their lives too, but. I think I think Sophie Couch was looking back, I think she was a spiritual gift. I think she was an intimation. Um it's the closest the one that we you and I call God could sort of get to my little girl psyche at that time that, that could help keep me growing and open because she did, because it was with Sophie Couch that I remember having my conversations about, okay, now, you know, what are we gonna be when we grow up? Things like that. And uh, I don't remember any conversations Sophie and I had specifically about what we would call race, but the very fact that she was black and I was white must have meant something. Well, it, it sounds like there was an awareness that you had at a very young age of of, of having been raced, of being raced, of, of divides, differences, mm-hmm. and a desire to bridge them. Right, not understanding why, you know, what what is this yeah. about? Yeah, tell me what drew you to New York <laughs> to to go to Union. Well, I went to I went to Randolph Macon Women's College in Lynch in Lynchburg. I grew up over in Roanoke, so yeah, so you know what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I went there, and I went there because I wanted to go to a women's college. It was either there or Duke, and I'm not quite sure, looking back, why it was those two particular, but. I, I looked at the university and I looked at the smaller women's college and wound up choosing the women's college. And then when I went to, I loved Randolph-Macon. It was a great school academically. And I've still to this day got some wonderful friends that that I made there. And uh, I majored in religion while I was there. And I majored in religion, not only because the religion professors were marvelous, and I just loved studying the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. With, with a critical awareness. I mean, I had, mm-hmm. as you know, was an Episcopalian. I, I, we had never been fundamentalist or biblical literalist, but also I had never really had a chance to study the Bible critically. And, uh, and, and you know what I mean by that, of course, but th- by that I mean not negatively, but by being able to look at who wrote it and why and when and how one passage might relate to another. And I was fascinated by that. And and also I studied world religions there, and I was fascinated by that. Uh-huh. And art history and music history, which really, in many ways were also religion courses, because we were studying basically it was Western art history and mm-hmm. Western music, and all of that teaching about the development of the church and various through various ages and and religious art mm-hmm. and sound. And I just loved that. So I followed in the footsteps of my religion professors and went off to seminary. Because I had not a clue what I would really do, I being ordained was not an option at that time. Sure. In the Sixties, 
And but teaching religion was an option. And I and I had some really good role models. And two of the three of my religion professors had been to Union in New York. So I was drawn like to New York and went there in 1967 to seminary. And where where did ordination emerge in your seminary teaching trajectory? Well, my parents tell me that I had told them when I was a little girl I wanted to be ordained, and they had told me very sadly that would not be able to be because yes. a girl couldn't be priest. So I don't remember thinking any more about that really until I got to seminary. I don't think I thought about it much, if at all, in college. Um, I was an active Episcopalian in college and attended Episcopal churches and Episcopal activities for young people. But in New York at Union, there were other seminarians, including Episcopal women, and well, including women from all kinds of denominations, because Union is an interdenominational seminary. And so women were there studying to be ordained in the Lutheran and Presbyterian um, United Church of Christ, and then there were Episcopal women like myself who were looking at this and thinking, hmm, hmm, <laughs> what, what, what about us? You know, what, what, you know. So we began to talk among ourselves, and uh, there were maybe ten other Episcopal seminaries at that time in the United States. And um, even though we didn't, we couldn't communicate as rapidly as we can today. We occasionally would have a chance to be together in various groups when we'd attend meetings at other seminaries like uh, General Seminary in New York and Union and and Episcopal. At the time, it was Episcopal Theological School up in Cambridge, Philadelphia Divinity School down in Philadelphia and other places. And, And there were women everywhere who were asking this same question. And so some of us, not myself included at first, but some of the women who uh, were ahead of me in terms of their consciousness and determination, went to the Houston Convention, the Triennial Convention in 1970, raised the issue of women's ordination. And that was the first time it got raised in the convention and it was defeated. And uh, I remember one of my friends coming back from the Houston Convention and saying, you would not believe it. You would not believe the kinds of things these people are saying. And one of the more outs, more memorable quote was a man who said he couldn't any more imagine God ordaining a woman than ordaining a cow. And so that's the kind of thing, that was the kind of news that got back to us from the Houston Convention. But at the Houston Convention, the convention voted to allow women to be ordained deacons on the same basis as men. And that was the Episcopal Church's big mistake if they did not want women priests, as you can well imagine, because that meant that from then on, Women, women deaconesses could become deacons in most dioceses that was permitted by bishops and standing committees. And in other places, we could be ordained deacons. And then we were just, then this logjam of women deacons began to build up immediately. And uh, so we, from that point on, um, we had a movement really of women and men, uh, lay people, deacons, priests, and bishops who were working for women's ordination through educational processes, through political processes, and so forth. So that was sooner or later it was going to happen. The question was when and when? how. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, uh, Polly Murray celebrated her her first Eucharist here in the, the chapel. 
on the Feast of Blessed Absalom Jones, 1977. And it was in, in, a, in a chapel where her enslaved grandmother had been baptized. And I'm curious, did you ever get to talk with her about, about women's ordination? She and I were both from the Diocese of uh, New York, ironically. And uh, she was at General Seminary uh, I'm of, I, she must have been almost through or maybe entirely through the ordination process at the time of the Philadelphia ordination, but she was not far behind us, as okay. you you know, and, and anyone right. Holly Murray realizes that she had been a stunning lawyer and had a woman of many talents and had gone to seminary relatively late in life mm-hmm. uh, to be ordained. And she and I remember vividly, she and I stood on the steps of one of the buildings near the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York and talked about this upcoming Philadelphia ordination once it had been planned and was in the works, which and it was going to be only several weeks later. And she she said she did not support what we were doing. Interesting. Yes, she supported women's ordination, but she really did think that we were moving too fast and that it would behoove us to slow down and bring the rest of the church along. However, she said if we decided to go through with it, she would be there. And so she was there. And uh, I think she never did. We never did discuss that ordination again. But Polly and I wound up being together in all kinds of meetings when we were working for women's ordination to pass the 1976 General Convention. So she there were there were the Philadelphia ordination simply sped up the movement. And made it inevitable, I think. I mean, that that was our strategic assumption at the time, was that somebody needed to do something because the 1973 convention had voted down women's ordination by an even greater margin than the 1971. Plus, there was an anti-feminism social movement afoot in the nation, Phyllis Schlafly and people who were working to defeat the ERA. Mm -hmm. So Bishop DeWitt of Philadelphia and Sue Hyatt who was my colleague and one of the women who was ordained, began putting together this irregular ordination. And that's what Polly had a thought about. And I have a feeling that she, I can't quote her because she didn't say this, but I have a feeling after the fact, she understood exactly why it had happened. And she certainly seemed to be supportive from that moment on. She never, ever said anything publicly against us, which was wonderful. And an important part of the strategy as well as not to be, undercutting people who are trying oh, to thing. Yeah, you know, so that we yeah, can work yeah. different different tracks for the same goal. Yeah. And she did. It seems like you have it's not even braided because it's too many strands for braiding, woven together these these different strands of seeking equity in relationship to race and human sexuality and gender, um, how, how are all of those for you bound up um, as you approach writing The Seven Deadly Sins of White Christian Nationalism? I remember back at the time of women's ordination, issues of race and and of the whiteness of those 11 of us uh, at the time was, I was aware of that. I, I was 
I wouldn't say I was exactly troubled by it. I mean, I didn't feel guilty, but I was aware that I wished that it could have been more multicultural and multi, uh, multi-raced at the time. I was also aware that, that among us were lesbians as well as straight women mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and maybe women of other, uh, who knows? I mean, we didn't have language in those days for varieties of gender and sexualities, but th- th- there was variation among us. Let's put it that way, and that, uh, and that these things were connected. That 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 uh, that gender and sexuality are always very closely related, and that we lacked a vocabulary. We in the churches, more more than the scientific community at that time, that they they were more aware that there were variations and fluctuations, and the church was you're either this or you're that. And this mm-hmm. is right and this is wrong. I had not at the time in the early 70s thought much about, much less begun teaching about connections between racism and sexism, mm-hmm. between uh, white women's privilege and uh, racism, our racism, uh, our unwitting racism, basically systemic racism, even if we had been sort of liberals working against racism all of our lives, it's still. White privilege is what it is, and that we're all we're all constructed by systemic injustices. Every one of us, regardless of how how full and open and good our hearts and minds are. So I knew all of that kind of at the Philadelphia ordination, and here we are, you know, almost fifty years later. And by the time I got to the seven deadly sins of white Christian nationalism, I was very mindful that all of this stuff is connected: race, class, sex environmental stuff, issues of violence, gun violence, all of this stuff is connected. And that, um, you know, I feel like if I could live another hundred years, I would understand this much more fully than I'll ever understand it in this lifetime. And that churches, you know, if we really want to be, as Michael Curry calls us, presiding Bishop Curry, you know, the Jesus people, um, we've got to live as if we can live transformative lives and help mm-hmm. help justice roll down like waters. Repair the breach and bear fruit. Absolutely. William Barber, I mean, every one of these people who's teaching and preaching this kind of glorious gospel sees that. And that's what this book is about. It's about making connections. And uh, as I've said to congregations wherever I've gone, and I'll say this again on the 18th, wherever in, wherever congregations and individuals can enter this, on whatever call or whatever deadly sin, and and there may be many more deadly sins. People always say, "Well, why why just seven? <laughs> Good question. You know, because there could be many others, and they're all connected. But wherever we can begin, we must begin. And the more together we can be, the better off, the better, more powerful we'll be, and uh, the more empowered we'll know we are. Well, I I know that the the Episcopal congregations of the county of Orange County are looking forward to to hosting you and welcoming you um, on the 18th. So excited about coming. I cannot tell you how pleased I am to have had this invitation and to be coming. I'm so pleased. And I just, I appreciate you taking a little time this morning and sharing that with us and being in conversation. We will look forward to seeing you. Thank you, Elizabeth Marie. The Chapel of the Cross is an Episcopal church in the heart of Chapel Hill and the university community. Find out more at thechapelofthecross.com.
www.thepastoralcare.org. There you can find our latest news and events, connect with our pastoral care team, Faith in Action Ministries, and offer a prayer request. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram at The Chapel of the Cross, and on Facebook and Twitter at C-O-T-C, Chapel Hill. May you be nourished by the Word to serve in the world.